It had been over 400 years since the Jews had heard from God through one of his prophets. The last was Malachi, who wrote in the final two verses of his short book, actually the final two verses of the Old Testament, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And so by the time we get to the beginning of Luke's gospel, over 400 years later, the fullness of of time had finally come. The fulfillment of the promises made as far back as Uh, Adam and Eve, to Abraham, to David, and to and through many of God's prophets to include, well, Malachi. The enduring, agonizing silence had been brutal, lasting through oppressive overlords to include their present oppressor, the dreaded and dreadful Romans. And so the time was ripe, and while few waited, there were some, a remnant, if you will, who longed for the coming of the Messiah with promised Deliverance. To be sure, the silence was first broken uh, to a priest named Zacharias in the temple when the angel Gabriel appeared to him and told him his aged barren wife Elizabeth would have a son. But not just any son. His name would be John, and he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. He would turn, we're told, many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. More, it would be John who would fulfill the prophecies of the forerunner who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Don't miss the wording. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. In other words, to change the hearts and minds of sinful people and a theme begins to emerge. And further, John would make ready a people prepared for the coming of the Lord. How the Jews, at least that remnant, those looking, how they had longed for this day. The angel soon thereafter appeared to Mary and told this young virgin woman that she too would bear a son. Again, not just any son, but he would be named Jesus. That same angel, we assume, then appeared to Joseph, Mary's betrothed, and told him basically the same thing. Name him Jesus, for he would save his people from their sins. The theme, you see, pops up again. The change of hearts for the forgiveness of sins. Well, Gabriel had told Mary, who was, by the way, shell-shocked, that her son would be the son of the Most High, that he would sit on the throne of his father David, and that he would reign over the house of Jacob forever. In fact, his kingdom would have no end. How can this be? Since I am a virgin, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for which reason your son will, your son will be called the Son of God. Oh, you want proof? Uh, Go see Baron Elizabeth, who by now is in her sixth month. So Mary hightailed it to see her relative Elizabeth, who was indeed pregnant with John. As soon as Elizabeth heard Mary's voice, the baby in her leapt, in her womb leapt for joy. You see, John was already beginning to fulfill his call to be a prophet, the forerunner of the promised Messiah. Three months later, When John was born, his father, whose tongue had been tied, let loose with a a song of praise. The song included prophetic words, well, at least words he heard from Gabriel, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, 
For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. There it is again. Maybe, just maybe, the planned Messiah would, not, would come not so much to deal with the problem of tyrannical Rome, but the problem of tyrannical personal sin. Well, the long-awaited prophet, the forerunner, uh, the one to prepare the way of the Lord had finally arrived. Six months later in Bethlehem, the son of Mary, more the son of God, was finally born to this poor working-class couple from that no-count backwater town called Nazareth. His birth, sure, was announced by an angel to, well, shepherds, heralded by a heavenly host of angels. The shepherds then made their way to see this baby lying in a, yeah, a manger, a feeding trough, no pomp, no circumstance, but simply, simply the fulfillment of all the prophecies made since the beginning of time. The fulfillment had finally come. You see, God had not only ended the silence, He had invaded our space in human flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Eight days later, according to the law, the child was circumcised, named Jesus per angelic command. Forty days after his birth, Joseph and Mary made their way to Jerusalem's temple for Mary's uh, purification, the child's presentation. And, and once again, and once again, the silence was broken by two unsuspecting heralds, old righteous Simeon and old prophetess Anna, likely a prophetess as she announced the arrival of the Christ child to all those who were looking for his advent. Silence had been broken. But then it goes quiet for a few more years, 12 to be exact. By this time, Jesus is 12. And when his family made their annual trip to Jerusalem, post-Passover, Jesus stayed behind. And after three frenetic days of search, his parents found him among the teachers, amazing, all present with his understanding and his questions. His exasperated mother asked him, why have you treated us? like this. Your father and I, I love this, your father and I have been anxiously searching everywhere for you, to which Jesus responded, why? Did you not know that I would be here at my father's, in my father's house? In my father's house. Actually, what he was saying, my father knew exactly where I was. The blanket of silence was pulled back once again as this 12-year-old boy not only amazed the teachers, onlookers, and parents, but he also claimed that God was his father. After all, the son to be born would in fact be the son of God, making him, are you ready, God in the flesh. <laughs> now think about it, the amazed teachers no doubt chuckled to themselves, well, he still has a few more things to learn, doesn't he? Only later... As an adult, when he calls God my father yet again, they will seek all the more to kill him, calling God his father, thus making himself equal with God. Exactly. Well, 12-year-old Jesus returned to Nazareth with his parents, to whom he uh, continued in subjection. And 
And it all goes quiet again for 18 uh, more years. Nothing recorded. The last we heard of John, the forerunner, was back at the end of chapter 1, last verse of the chapter, verse 80, which said, And the child, that is John, continued to grow and become strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until the day of his public appearance to Israel. The last we heard of Jesus was the end of chapter 2. Again, last verse, verse 52, which said, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. In other words, simply stated, the boys grew up rather privately for 18 more years until they were both about 30. So would you think about that with me just for a moment? It had been 30 years from their respective births. By this time, very likely, aged Zacharias and Elizabeth were, well, dead. They had gone on to heaven. By this time, very likely, Joseph had died and joined them in heaven since he is never again mentioned in the gospel narrative. Simeon and Anna, the two aged witnesses and heralds, were undoubtedly dead by now, watching things unfold on earth below with Zacharias, Elizabeth, and Joseph, perhaps with a bag of popcorn. Meaning, meaning... Most of the witnesses as to the identity of John and Jesus were dead. And the blanket of silence descended again. Perhaps those who had heard the news from the shepherds and Simeon and Anna had gone on in death or on with their lives, you see. Even Mary by this time was in her mid-40s. It was silent again, except for the buzzing of locusts and honeybees. And the sound of hammer and chisel. Do you hear it? It would not remain so. You see, the fullness of time had come. God had sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem His own. How? Well, we'll see. By by repentance and faith, there is... No other way. While perhaps earth and and the Jewish Jewish people had gone back to their miserable existences, all was about to change, starting with the promised forerunner. He he had moved to the wilderness, perhaps after the death of his parents, and yet all along God was preparing this spirit-filled one, this one who would come in the spirit uh, and power of Elijah. Bring us to our text, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and following. Let's go ahead and read through verse 9 just to get the, the tone. It's quite special. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Idria and, and uh, Trachonitis, and Lusanius uh, was tetrarch of Abilene, In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came about, and he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There there it is again. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, 
The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough road smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. So he, John, began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our fathers. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As we've discovered, Luke was a very capable historian in a deeply theolog- uh, with deeply theological purposes. Both of those are important. You see, when he recorded rulers and reigns and titles and territories, he, he was invariably right. Now, not that everybody always has thought he was right. In fact, sometimes they have accused him of historical inaccuracies, but in, inaccuracies, but in the end, he's proven correct. And so that helps us with the timing of biblical events covering, are you ready, a 70-year period through Luke and Acts, from, well, Caesar Augustus and Herod the Great, uh, through Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate, to Emperor Nero's, to Governors Festus and Felix, and King Herod Agrippa, the last of the Herods. It is an amazingly accurate history. But listen, historical data is not the most important of Luke's contributions. Again, while a capable historian, he always had theological purposes for his carefully researched data. So so here he lists no less than seven names, five political, two, well, religious in nature. Why? What's his purpose? Because, you see, into this dark landscape, in the depth of political and spiritual depravity, John came, preparing the way uh, for one mightier than he would, who would soon come. Truly, Jesus came in actual fact of history, born of a woman, in the fullness of time, when he would be the light of the world, indeed, a very dark world. It seems to me, looking around, that now would be a really good time for him to show up again. And so, how and what does John come preaching? (laughs) What indeed? The need for repentance and corresponding baptism for the forgiveness of sins. All to prepare for the one who was to come. And I would suggest, while John's baptism is not Christian baptism, we'll see that in a moment, Jesus still comes the same way to people who need rescue from the tyranny of sin, who repent and thereby flee. Are you ready from the wrath to come? (laughs) It's not a very popular message today. We even have a name for it, don't we? Hellfire and brimstone preaching. I suspect that John's message would not much be welcomed by many today, nor would the one mightier than John who came to rescue us from the coming wrath. You see, Jesus' first message was the same. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's my question. Would John, even Jesus, be received in most churches today? 
Would he, would he hear? Would he in your hearts? Yeah. Let me give you the outline of the text. We see the political landscape, the religious landscape, and then the very much-needed message of John in the midst of deep, deep darkness. As I mentioned earlier, Luke lists seven names in verses 1 and 2, which comprise our first two points. We see five political, by the way, Gentile names, five rulers in verse 1, starting with, well, Tiberius Caesar, which means we have, uh, have rolled the clock forward from Caesar Augustus, the first emperor of the Roman Empire, to the second Tiberius Caesar. Luke actually mentioned Augustus back in chapter 2 at the birth of Jesus. Matthew tells us it was also during the reign of Herod the Great in Palestine. Now, we know that Herod the Great died in 4 BC, so Jesus was born at least by then. Augustus ruled as emperor from 27 BC until his death in 14 AD, at which time Tiberius became sole emperor. I say sole emperor because he was named co-ruler with Augustus in 11 AD. And Tiberius then ruled until his death in 37 AD. So he was the emperor during most of Jesus' life. Where am I going? I have a point. You should be taking notes, by the way. Which means when Luke says it was the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, it was somewhere between 26 and 29 A.D. But later in chapter 3, we find Jesus began his ministry when he was about 30 years of age. If, we, if he was born in 4 B.C. at the latest, doing the math takes us to about 26 or 27 A.D., just my calculations, which, by the way, we know that Jesus died during a high Sabbath. That is a Sabbath uh, that fell on Passover, and that happened in 30 A.D., so the time frame fits. I love Luke. It was also when Pontius Pilate was governor, better prefect of Judea. He ruled during all of Jesus' ministry and eventually, well, had him crucified now, now, when Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided between his three capable sons. He had more sons, they just weren't capable. There was Archelaus, Archelaus Herod Antipas, and Herod Philip. But soon Archelaus proved to be incompetent, about 6 AD, I think it was, and, and Rome replaced him with prefects, that is, governors, who maintained Rome's interests, namely taxation, and maintained peace in these political hotspots. So Pilate was the fifth such prefect in the very troubled area of Judea, which included Jerusalem. And we will talk about him more later in our study, but he does appear in extra-biblical literature to include Josephus, and an inscription with his name as prefect was found in Caesarea in June 1961 on what is now called the Pilate Stone. Why do I make a big deal about that? Because I told you that, that, that people want to assail the historicity of the Bible all the time. And there was, until about 1961, there was not a lot of external evidence that, that a guy named Pilate ever actually even existed. And then they were doing some archaeological digs in Caesarea Maritima. And one of the things that they, they discovered that people would do, uh, the, the, the civilization would do, is if, if a building had fallen into disrepair, they would take the stones and use them to build something else. And they took this stone from a temple that Pilate had erected in the name of Augustus. And they took that stone and 
had an inscription on it, and they put it face down and used it in the staircase. And it's a good thing they put it face down because then when it was discovered in June 1961, they turned it over, and what did they find? That Pilate was the prefect in Judea at the time of Augustus. Actually, it was a little bit later than that, but at the time of Augustus and Tiberius. The point being is Luke was right. And liberals, shocking, were wrong. I love to say that. <laughs> History tells us that Pilate was not a very capable ruler. He was always in trouble with Jewish subjects. His specialty was infuriating them, which got him in hot water with Tiberius back in Rome. Uh, next was Herod Antipas, who was Tetrarch of Galilee, and he ruled from uh, the death of his father in 4 BC until 39 um, AD, uh, pretty much during Jesus' entire life. Tetrarch of Galilee, that's Nazareth. His headquarters was in Tiberias, a city on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee that he had built in 20 AD and named after the emperor. Now, now a tetrarch was, by the way, technically a fourth ruler, right? There's supposed to be four, but Herod only had three competent sons to which he left his empire. But hey, what's one tetrarch among friends? Antipas ruled the area, again, of Galilee and Perea to the east of the Jordan. He, he divorced his wife in order to marry his brother Herod Philip's wife. Her name was Herodias, not to be confused with the Philip here, listen, there are Philips and Herods running around everywhere. It's a little bit confusing, uh, whatever. John the Baptist later publicly condemned this union, which led to his arrest and eventual death by beheading. I, I mean, really, should a religious leader like John the Baptist be calling out the ungodliness of governmental leaders? I don't know. We'll meet this Herod later when Jesus calls him a fox. And again later, as Luke alone records, that Jesus was sent by Pilate to Herod, who happened to be in Jerusalem during the pass that last fateful Passover. When, when Pilate's interrogating Jesus and find out he's from Galilee, oh, you're one of the king's subjects. Go see Herod. Next, we meet Philip, who was the tetrarch of Iteria and Trachonitis to the northeast of Galilee. The capital city was Caesarea Philippi, <laughs> named after himself, but there was a Caesarea Maritima, so, so as not to be confused with the one on the seacoast, he named it after himself, Philippi. It's where Peter rightly declared Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. Philip ruled from 4 BC until his death in 34 AD. Are you getting these down? I'm not seeing many pens. Okay. Um, some suggest he was actually the best of the Herodian rulers. Next was some guy named Lu, uh, Lusanius, who was the Tetrarch of Abilene. No, not Texas. Texas isn't in the Bible, you Texans. Abilene is even further to the northeast of Philip's territory. This one is rather interesting and for a long time did cause problems because the only Lysanias um, known uh, ruled in 36 BC, decades before this. And so Luke was wrong, right? Wrong. Not so fast. Later inscriptions were found that another Lysanias, which was perhaps a dynasty name, ruled in the area, are you ready, during this period, just like Luke said. Again, liberal historians and even theologians left with egg on their face. Now, why does Luke record these names so meticulously, except to just cause you to read through the verse very quickly? 
Well, certainly as a careful historian, Luke wants to place Jesus firmly in actual history. It's almost like God knew while inspiring the New Testament that later liberals would question its historical reliability. Slow down. But not only that, these rulers, none of which, again, were Jews, were incredibly ungodly. Their rule was ungodly. Their character was immoral and wicked. One author said that everything we know about this impressive list of leaders testifies to their pride, their violence, and their self-indulgence. And so Jesus came at a time when His light would shine brightest in deepest darkness. And they would have to do something with this Jesus. We'll come back to that. That brings us to our second point, the religious landscape, which was just about as dark. We read in verse 2 that this all took place during the priesthood singular, that's kind of interesting, of Annas and Caiaphas. How can you have one priesthood of two guys? Well, it was an incredible shot across the bow that Luke takes of the ungodly and unbiblical priesthoods of Annas and his family. You see, the high priesthood was owned by, at this time by the Sadducees, you know, the Sadducees who denied most of the Old Testament except for the first five books, who denied angels, who denied miracles, who denied the resurrection, saw themselves as the embodiment of the Messianic ideal. In other words, they denied that there was actually a Messiah who was going to come. So, of course, they didn't accept Jesus and, in fact, opposed Him. You see, they were totally in bed with the Romans. They, they wanted to preserve Roman rule because they partnered together and enriched themselves thereby. Any upset in the, in the status quo would have a negative impact on their income, their wealth, and their power. So they, 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 they eventually and vehemently opposed Jesus and his message. Now this Annas was the high priest from 6 to 15 AD before he was removed by the Romans, one of the earlier prefects, because you see, he had way too much power. But, but, but you say the Old Testament priest, uh, the, Old Testament, the Old Testament said the high priest, and there's only supposed to be one, by the way, served until his death. You're right. Further, the, the, the high priest is the head of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body, making him quite powerful. Again, Annas was removed by the Romans, but that did nothing to abate his power and his wealth. He still controlled all the ungodly commerce in the temple, which is why Jesus went in and overturned the tables of the money changers and people selling stuff. My house shall not be a den of thieves. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. This market was pejoratively called the Bazaar of Annas. After he was removed... Five of his sons, Annas' five of Annas' son, served in the role of high priest. And his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who wasn't even in the line of the priesthood, served in the role from 18 to 36 AD. They were both alive and ruling during Jesus' ministry, arrest, trial, and crucifixion. In fact, after his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was taken first to Annas, then to Caiaphas. Caiaphas tried him and declared Jesus guilty of blasphemy because of his claim to be the Messiah. Are you ready? To be the Messiah, the Son of God. He was. It was Caiaphas and his cohorts who took Jesus to Pilate. Not having the right to the death penalty. We'll save more of that for later. But these two, Annas and Caiaphas, were real spiritual gems, giants, religious charlatans. We will not see them in heaven. So all that gives you the landscape. But don't miss the end 
of verse 2. He writes verses 1 and 2 to get to the end of verse 2. And the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Really? Are you impressed? First, you should know the wording is much like the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. When, when the word of God, or the word of the Lord came to many Old Testament prophets, some of the same wording like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, and Joel, meaning the 400 silent years have finally come to an end. They've been lifted. The word of God came to the last of the Old Testament prophets named John, who served as a bridge between the Old and New Testaments, the forerunner of the Messiah who would bring the new covenant. But here's the theological point. Don't miss it. Luke means for us to see it. The Word of God did not come to the halls of political power of the day, to Tiberius or Pilate or Antipas or, or, or Philip. As you read through the list, you're supposed to be impressed and quaking. The Word of God didn't even come to the sacred halls of the temple, to Annas or Caiaphas, the supposed spiritual leaders of the nation. The Word of God came to John. Who, John? He had no title, no impressive city or palace. He lived in the wilderness, the largely uninhabited desert area to the south and east of Jerusalem. Why? Because the religious leaders were corrupt. And Luke is continuing a theme that Jesus came in a way you would never expect to pick people, uh, to, to people you would never pick. John the Baptist? What image comes to your mind? Luke doesn't tell us, but we know from the other Gospels a little more about John's life in the wilderness. His parents were told he would drink no wine or liquor, causing some to suggest that he was a Nazarite from birth. If that's true, he never cut his hair, which means by age 30 he would have been a sight to behold. Further, his clothing was camel's hair and a leather belt. And his diet consisted, are you ready, locusts and wild honey. The buzzing of locusts and honeybees was reaching a crescendo, you see. And remember, he was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb, which means his life in the desert, he wasn't alone. He was filled with God as he awaited his calling and mission to be carried out. It's a contrast between that which the world values and fears and John. It came when the Word of God came to him, bringing us to our last point, the much-needed message of John in verses 3 to 6. Actually, it's just the introduction uh, summary of his message. It goes through verse 17, but I have chosen to spare you and only go through verse 6 today. We see, first, John came into all the district around the Jordan, that is the Jordan River, because it was close to the wilderness, and further, he was baptizing, well, so he needed water. And what was his message? What did he say? He preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There it is again. Just like Gabriel said he would, just like his father Zechariah said he would, to turn the hearts of the people back to their children, the attitude of the disobedient to the righteous, to give people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins. It only comes one way. It's always only come one way. 
Now, to be clear, baptism was not the means of repentance or salvation. It was simply a sign, a symbol that pointed to that which was signified, that which had happened in, the, in people's hearts as large crowds came to listen to his preaching, and they were convicted of their sin by the Holy Spirit, turned from it in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. Again, not Christian baptism, but Christian baptism is also a sign, a symbol pointing beyond itself to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, providing salvation to, are you ready, repentant hearts. Because, I'm going to say something very clearly, there is no salvation without repentance. Repentance is absolutely necessary for salvation to be experienced. We're going to see this over the next few weeks. You can't just... Cling to a prayer you prayed or an aisle you walked and think you're okay and continue to love your sin. Scripture is clear. Even repentance is a gift granted by God. So it's not a work as some suggest. But it is a work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of people who then repent when they are awakened to the grace of God and the glories of Christ. And it's absolutely necessary. What is it to repent? It is a change of heart and mind. It is a turning from sin and turning in faith to Jesus Christ. And we will find then bringing forth fruit as proof of salvation. What James calls a living faith because faith without corresponding works is dead. You see, regardless of the time, Old Testament, the preaching of John, New Covenant, repentance is required for true salvation. In other words, you cannot just use Jesus as a fire escape from hell. Thank you, sign me up, I want to go to heaven and live a life like I'm in hell. No! The grace of God through the gospel must change your life. It's the message throughout the Bible. John is going to make that abundantly clear in the verses ahead. Don't think just because you have Abraham as your father that you're okay. You're not. Family pedigree won't do it. Repentance and fruit, uh, and uh, corresponding fruit in keeping with repentance will be what does it. Because it proves, it doesn't save you, but it proves the reality of faith. Don't think you can just be baptized, right? Walk an aisle, sign a card, pray a prayer, and, and be okay. The gospel will change your life. It begins with repentance. Listen to me. The old the story is told of a 19th century Methodist preacher, very famous, Peter Cartwright. People flock to see him. He was told before a service that President Andrew Jackson would be there. He was a fiery preacher, so it was suggested that he guard his words. So he stood up. First words out of his mouth were these. I understand that Andrew Jackson is here. I have been requested to be guarded in my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he does not repent. (laughs) And so will you. So will you. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me close with these thoughts. Verses 4 to 6 are quote Isaiah 40. 
Isaiah 40 is actually a turning point in the book of Isaiah. It's been pretty much doom and gloom and judgment till then. But Isaiah gets to chapter 40, turns the page, and he offers hope. Comfort, comfort my people Israel. The Lord is coming. And Luke quotes Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5. The the, the other gospels only quote Isaiah 40, verse 3, when talking about John. Luke goes beyond that. Look at it. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. He's coming. And now we know His name is Jesus. Don't miss that Isaiah 40 is talking about the Lord's coming, capital L-O-R-D. That is Yahweh's coming. And here Luke applies it to Jesus, God in the flesh, because He was, you see. Away with this nonsense of Jesus never claimed to be God, or the New Testament never claimed that Jesus was God. Anybody who says that has never done, has never even read the Bible, let alone done a serious study of it. He was God in the flesh. Yahweh. How do we prepare for His coming? Luke goes on. You need to understand the context of the day. Back then, when when a visiting dignitary, perhaps a king or a high-ranking official was coming, cities and towns would prepare. They would go out and clean up the roadways outside the city gates of trash and garbage, overgrowth and rocks and ruts. But, but, But here, this is not just any king. This is the king of kings. And so every ravine shall be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. Can you imagine that where we live? The crooked will become straight. That would be nice. And the rough roads will be made smooth. This is all a metaphor, an analogy of what happens when the people of John's day repented. When the people of our day repent. They prepare their hearts and minds for the coming of the Messiah. And as a result, all flesh will see the salvation of God. That's why Luke went beyond verse 3. Because he understood and made clear the Messiah was not just a Jewish Messiah. He would be the Savior of all flesh, all people. And we receive Him by repenting of our sins and trusting or believing in Him by faith. And so, all people will need to make a decision about Christ. You will need to make a decision about Christ. You see, the, the, the previous private lies of John and Jesus <laughs> had become quite public. And, and they appeared before... Mo- I want mean, you to notice this. They appeared before most of the seven names in the list. John appeared before Herod Antipas and lost his head for calling out sin and preaching repentance. Jesus appeared before Herod, Pilate, Annas, and Caiaphas, and together they crucified him. Paul, in the book of Acts, will later appear before Herod Agrippa, governors, and ultimately Caesar himself. All of these political and religious leaders, household names to everybody then, had to make a decision about Jesus. So do you. They did. Have you? John and Jesus preached repentance. The rest of the New Testament preaches faith in Jesus Christ. He has become quite public. So, what will you do? You must make a decision about Christ. Let's stand for prayer.
Father, I became convinced this week that truly I've, I've heard it over and over. I've studied the Bible for 40 years. Truly inspired by you and inexhaustible. We will never plumb the depths of its veracity, of its truthfulness, of its merit, of its value. It is eternal. It is your word to us. And even in these verses that we typically just kind of skim through, we find they mean something. You picked John. Some dude hanging out with the jackals in the wilderness to proclaim the coming of the Lord. It's incredible. You've picked us to do the same. Father, my prayer this morning is for people in this room and perhaps watching that they would not rely on a family pedigree or something that they've done to to receive Jesus with no intent to change their lives or allow the Holy Spirit to change their lives. And they go on living in sinful bliss, thinking themselves okay. John has some very strong words. Help us to hear them, I pray. Help us to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.